Okay, so we're here with Mark Talsey, Professor of the History of Book at the University of Liverpool. He's agreed to talk to me about his new book, which is called um, Reading History in Britain and America, 1750 to 1840, recently published with uh, Cambridge University Press, and I'm Max Gunsberg, also of the University of Liverpool. So Mark, would you mind beginning by telling us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book? Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Max, for uh, the opportunity to talk to you um, about uh, the book. Um, it really comes from the last um, 12 or 13 years' work uh, for me, um, in, in that it comes out of um, uh, one of the really obvious take-homes of, of the work I've been doing previously, um, which is a, a book on um, Scottish readers of the Enlightenment, um, and subsequent to that, various articles on the history of libraries uh, in the 18th century. Um, and what's very striking, if you look at library records uh, in the 18th century, is that history books, um, wherever we look and whatever records survive, uh, tend to be the ones that are flying off the shelves most often, uh, whether it's at the Scottish universities um, or at um, subscription libraries in bustling Atlantic ports like Bristol or New York, the plantations of Charleston, farming communities of the Scottish borders, wherever we look for these sources, um, history books are attracting a lot of readership. Um, and it is um, often uh, slightly older books uh, by people like Roland and Rapan, um, but uh, the names Hume and Robertson and Gibbon uh, turn up very, very frequently, um, both in library catalogues, um, Hume's History of England, Robertson's History of the Reign of Charles V, virtually ubiquitous uh, in surviving catalogues uh, from libraries in the 18th century, um, but also borrowing records, um, so that they're, they're in the libraries, but people are also interested in reading them. Um, so that what I was really interested to do and motivated to do for this book was to find out why, why that is, a bit more, um, look at as much of the surviving evidence for reader response as I could in terms of commonplace books and reading diaries, notebooks, letters, um, also physical copies um, of the text to see to try and find minor marginalia. Um, look at as much of the available evidence as I could um, to, to find out um, why those books are being read and what people are doing with them. Um, that a second a subsidiary motivation, if you will, um, comes partly from, from that list of places where there are libraries with people reading histories. This seemed to me, um, as someone who started life uh, trained as a Scottish historian in mm -hmm. St Andrews, um, uh, who then moved to a, a history department in, in England at Liverpool, um, interested in thinking about and connecting Scottish experiences to wider uh, British experiences. This seemed to me a project that gave me the opportunity to talk about uh, what readers are doing in Wales and in Ireland, as well as in Scotland, as well as in England. Uh, compare those experiences to readers in Charleston, in New York, in Philadelphia, uh, in uh, New Hampshire, um, and compare those experiences to readers in the Caribbean or to readers who are in India working for the East India Company. So, so it, the, the, the second motivation emerged as I was writing the book was to think about this as a project that allowed me to talk about and think about reading across 
the, the Anglophone world, really, in the 18th century. Okay, that's great. So we're going to address in a moment some of the answers you found in terms of why uh, history books are so important in, in this period. But first, could you perhaps say a little bit about the genre of the book? So it's an exercise in the history of reading. So could you perhaps say a few words about this discipline, the history of reading? Yeah, um, so as history of reading, uh, I also have always quite liked um, one of the terms that Robert Danton first used for this sort of approach, which was the social history of ideas, because I am actually interested in the ideas fundamentally and, and how those ideas circulate and how they're, they're impacting on individuals um, and the individual readers and, and changing their minds. Uh, or reinforcing what they already think. So the history of reading um, comes from twin impulses, really. Um, you have in the 70s and 80s, you have people becoming particularly increasingly interested in the history of books, um, material bibliography and those sort of approaches. Mm -hmm. um, at, at the same time, uh, running concurrently, you have um, from the theoretical side, you have theorists very interested in reception and reader response. Um, and that really fuses um, together into questions about meaning um, and the meaning in books um, and really um, encouraging us to uh, develop a healthy skepticism over um, how far the author controls the meaning of the book she or he writes. Um, and as, a, as an intellectual historian by training, I'm now very much interested in, uh, in thinking about whether uh, authors of the Enlightenment um, have as much control over the meaning of their books as uh, conventional intellectual historians might um, think they do. Um, another facet of, of, of my contribution, I think, um, and others that I think we'll talk about in a moment, um, is that I'm really interested in historicizing this. Quite a lot of the, the early work in the history of reading, and particularly on the theoretical side, is thinking yes. about um, uh, contemporary readers and is thinking about theoretical situations. Um, uh, I was, I've been really interested throughout my career to try and find evidence of how that actually happens in the 18th century and what, what the relationship between reader and text and author is um, so part of that is also then thinking about source materials um, and thinking about new ways of, of of reading those sources and and actually taking more seriously the the, the sources that do survive a lot of what i deal with in this book are, are, are copies um, readers transcribing endlessly passages of text from the books they've read um, and on the face of it those look really boring because they're copies but uh, if read the between the lines, think about yeah. what they've left out, what they've changed. You can actually tell quite a lot about how they are, are approaching these books and how these books are, are interacting with their intellectual worlds. Absolutely. And someone who's meant a lot for, uh, for this discipline, the history of reading, uh, an intellectual historian uh, with a career at uh, St. Andrews and uh, the Intellectual History Institute at St. Andrews, and uh, someone who's meant a lot for you also personally, your, your PhD supervisor, David Allen, good friend of, of both of us. Um, could you perhaps talk a little bit about David and his impact on, on your work? Uh, well, David is a, a, a great scholar uh, he's, and, and he's hugely productive. 
Um, and uh, I was very fortunate enough to be setting out uh, on a PhD uh, in, in the mid sort of noughties, 2003-ish, 4-ish, um, looking for reader responses to Scottish Enlightenment texts. Um, it was meant to be about lots of other things, but it turned into a PhD purely about readers. Um, but at the exact same time, David was hoovering up uh, fellowships, library fellowships, and little bits of time away from, from St Andrews to do his own research. Um, and I wasn't really fully aware of what he was doing at the time, um, but uh, it became more fully aware later on when three books emerged um, from those mm -hmm. periods of leave, um, Making British Culture, Nation of Readers, and a book on commonplace books, which is really just fantastic uh, and mm -hmm. still deserves to be more widely known, I think. Um, and it was amazingly useful for me as a PhD student to be exploring reasonably new source materials um, uh, at the same time as my supervisor was doing that work. I was doing it for Scotland, he was doing it for England. Um, uh, it helped reassure me that I was on the right track. Um, what I think David's also done for me, but I think uh, uh, the whole generation coming through of book historians and historians of reading is is giving us starting points, mm. um, starting points which which I feel I'm I'm still in the process of following through, um, and and I think there's a there's a lot there to be um, thought about further and thought about the implications of some of the stuff that David wrote about. Fantastic. So going back to your book, um, what was the most surprising finding from from the research you you did for the book? Uh, well, I I had done a fairly um, very fortunate enough to to, to have a um, successive visiting fellowships and and time to to spend in archives. Uh, I had done <clears throat> a fairly thorough trawl of surviving commonplace books in American and British libraries, um, and and um, as is the way of the the modern scholar. Um, even more so now in times of COVID, I suspect. Um, I had taken a lot of photos and hadn't worked through those photos. And what was really very exciting um, for me as I was working through the material and then writing it up was, was, was actually the sheer range of places and situations in which you find these books being read. We know of Hume's history mm. of England, Robertson's histories, Gibbon's Decline of Fall, really as sort of totemic books of the Enlightenment. So they, they, they are heavyweight classics of, of, of the intellectual history of the era. Um, but these, these books are also turning up in very, very ordinary, everyday situations, uh, households, uh, shared reading within a household. They are also turning up in very, very extraordinary um, and unusual places. So, so it's, it's the unusual places really that I found evidence of people reading these books and what they were doing with them. And, and one of my favourites is a staff officer, and I start the first chapter with him actually, a staff officer who finds himself during the Poet Wars, he finds himself in Cadiz when Cadiz is being besieged in 1810. Um, and there's a notebook that survives of him, um, doesn't mention Robertson's name anywhere, uh, but one half of this notebook uh, is essentially him working through Robertson's history of the reign of Charles V, um, picking out tiny little snippets uh, from across the book where Robertson talks about the, his the, the early history of, of very early signs and uh, of representative government in Spain. Um, 
what what's fascinating about this notebook is that he flips it over um the other side of the book he he is a journal uh with daily entries describing what is happening at the Cadiz um cortez uh, which meets in september of 1810 and he's one of the british invited invited guests and is it's it's very much an eyewitness account of what's going on uh, it's, this is the very big um major event in napoleonic and um, peninsula history it's the the first representative assembly to claim sovereignty over the whole of spain um and this very young staff officer is is reading um charles v robertson's charles v to try to understand um and um um to to understand what what um is happening and mm. historical significance of what he's seeing um so yes yeah, it's, it's those very unusual places and i and by the way i never expected i'd find myself writing about cadiz during the napoleonic <laughs> wars okay so moving from cadiz but staying with a scottish author so you already mentioned uh hume who's of course a, an incredibly important historical writer at the time um, who famously said that this is the historical age and, and this is the historical nation. Um, his History of England became a bestseller. It's that book that he was most famous for at the time and made him uh, a wealthy man. Uh, but it was also a very controversial book, which comes across uh, very clearly in, in, the, in the book uh, you've written. Could you perhaps give a few examples of how Hume's history was read in, in different ways by different people at the time? So I I think um, yeah, uh, Hume was was sort of a Marmite author of the 18th century, and yeah. um, throughout the book you can can find people responding in in very divergent ways uh, to to his religious attitudes and his political attitudes. Um, that that's there in the book, but what I what I, what I think um, I'd emphasise uh, is is the 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 ordinary ways in which he's being read um, mm -hmm. and the um, the re really what emerged from me is that, that Hume's history becomes uh, really an educational primer uh, for, for a generation or two of, of British readers who are wanting to find out about British history. British history is so fundamental to so many, um, so many facets of, of British identity developing in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And yet history, modern history, isn't formally taught in universities or, or mm. schools or colleges until, until at least the 1820s and 1830s. So, so a, lot, a, a lot of these readers, they, they want historical information and education mm. that is coming from the books they read. Um, and in many cases, it is coming from Hume's history. Um, so, so you, you find that the, the wife of a, a Mancunian cotton lord who, who is now a radical MP and his wife is busy uh, reading Hume's history uh, for and to their son, who, who mm. this is a, an educational uh, um, endeavour towards um, you know, raising, raising up their um, raising up their social mobility really you know they, they, they come from a manufacturing background and they are trying to embed themselves in in political culture by reading a historical work um that you, you mentioned sort of the different ways in which Hume's history is read um what I'd emphasize is that the same reader can read Hume's histories in very different ways mm -hmm. so there's a, a Newcastle uh, MP uh, who arrives um in parliament as quite a young man in 
at the start of the 19th century, about 1803, I think, um, and compiles a 300-page transcription uh, or abridgment uh, of Hume's history uh, as, as an educational project designed to, to, to really get, get in his head the, the, the parameters of British constitutional history. It's only as he sits in Parliament over the next 20, 25 years that he realises that, that Hume's account uh, of British history does not necessarily fit with what a lot of contemporaries think mm -hmm. should be the account of British constitutional development. And, and as, as, the, as the time develops, uh, he's, he, his notes from Hume are purely on the right-hand side of the notebook. He's filling out the left-hand side of each page with later notes from later books that are highlighting how far Hume is deviating uh, from the traditional Whiggish reading of British history. So by the time you get to the 1820s, and this, this MP William Ord is involved in some of the debates about the Reform Bill, um, his notebook on Hume's history um, has changed very, very dramatically in character, um, beginning to look nothing like the sort of text that Hume would have reproved. Mm -hmm. um, and yet this composite history of England that is Hume, but then is more Henry Hallam, uh, is, is, mm -hmm. is the book that is, that is an active guide, um, helping him through the Reform Bill debates and helping him to see the historical um, background to some of the things that are being discussed. And the, the, the final, um, again, it's a political example, mm -hmm. um, but, but a very, very, um, to the moment reading is someone like uh, Jeremiah Belknap, who's a clergyman in New Hampshire. And again, he's someone that knows Hume's history very well. Um, but when he reads that or, or hears that the uh, New Hampshire delegate to the First Continental Congress is returning in two days and has invited Jeremiah to go and have supper with him to talk about what happens next uh, in 1774. Um, Jeremiah's instinct is to go back to Hume uh, and to reflect on a very specific paragraph in Hume's account of Charles I. And, and this paragraph is then going to be used by Jeremiah Belknap and by his um, collaborators to, to, to make the case for going further with those conclusions of the First Continental Congress. Um, so you can see that the, 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 while it's got all of these... Um, all, all of these controversial moments around it, around sort of scepticism and around a sort of Jacobite and Tory and Whig, there are very specific circumstances where this book is being read in very, very specific ways. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. So we talked about lots of fascinating examples from your, um, your archival findings. Um, to go back a little bit to the beginning in terms of the uh, the key argument of the book what what do you um what do you think people will take away from the book and what do you want people to take away from from reading this book um i think the the main answer to that has, has been um uh, anticipated a little bit in quite a few of the examples that i've used and and particularly that the, those last couple of examples and that um the, the, the takeaway from this book for me is that um, books do not necessarily mean, uh, do not mean or do not necessarily mean what their authors want them to mean. Um, the meaning of a book uh, is going to depend on where it's read, who's reading it, when it's read. 
a book written in the 1770s or 1750s is going to mean very, very different things in the 18 teens. Um, and through the sources that survive, we can we can track those the way those meanings shift and change. Um, um, and this this these changes will will happen because of um, you know massive political events um, to fit with sort of national uh, changes, but also very specific personal events. Um, all of these things can change how a reader responds to a book. Um, and I get, guess on the on the bigger picture, we might ask what that then means for for the Enlightenment, which is not necessarily something I, I really wanted to get into in in, in the book itself. Um, but I think it is um, it has made me teach my Enlightenment courses differently uh, now that I've finished this book. Um, I, I don't think that it means there is no such thing as Enlightenment. Um, I think authors still think there's an Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, I, I, when I'm teaching, I now put much more emphasis on the Enlightenment as something that is, that is being taught or being promoted. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in thinking about how, and this book um, it does this, but also in, in future work, that thinking about the success of Enlightenment. Um, mm -hmm. And the success of Enlightenment depends on um, how it's then read. Um, it isn't just this this battery of um, of, of famous talking heads. Um, uh, it isn't the other people that then enter print to, to rebut them or or adapt their arguments. Mm -hmm. It's also a, a process of engagement that that the readers are involved with, um, and that can reach onwards. Um, into so the, the legacy of the Enlightenment into the nineteenth century as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, but it's all in the Enlightenment lies in in that in that moment of reading and and what happens. Do, 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 do readers do readers get what someone like Hume is trying to do, yeah. um, or someone like Rousseau is trying to do, or or do they bring their own preconceptions to the stuff that they're reading and misread entirely what the author is wanting to say? Or do they take it in, in you know, that they're, they're living in a radical, com radically different context, like post-revolution, independent America. They're going to read very, very different things into the text that the author has produced. Um, so I think that's, um, that, that's one of the things that the book means for me anyway. Um, Excellent. And finally, then, what are you working on now, Mark? Uh, so the the answer to this has been virtually unchanged for the last uh, most of the last decade. Uh, in that, for a long time, I've been wanting to wanting to write a book on women's reading uh, in the 18th century, um, uh, women as um, mediators of Enlightenment books. Um, comes from a, a number of different directions. Um, it has often been commented by scholars before that that Scotland. Uh, the Scottish Enlightenment lacks uh, many uh, female contributors. Um, and yet, uh, if you look at Scottish readers, uh, Scottish female readers, they are doing an awful lot of enlightening to other yeah. readers. Um, and they're, they're, into, they're inserting themselves into other readers' relationships with Enlightenment books. So that's one side. And, and it will be really through case studies. I'm sort of conceiving it as sort of an, an intellectual biography of mm -hmm. uh, five or six women, a collective intellectual biography of five or six women who never actually publish anything. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's something that, that, that 
I keep coming back to and then going off to do other things and then coming back to. There, there are plenty um, of female readers in this book, female readers of, of histories. Yes. 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 So some of those will be some of my case studies and I'll be looking to Excellent. think more about how the rest of their reading operates around those read. I, I deliberately didn't include a specific mm -hmm. chapter on women for this book, Reading History, but uh, for those that have uh, have seen it. I've got a lovely image on the front of uh, a woman who's facing. It's a sketch from an Edinburgh um, drawing room in the sort of 18 teens. Yeah. And there's sort of a we mother put that figure. On the website, who, yeah. yeah. There's a mother figure uh, writing at a desk and with his back to us is, is someone else. And so often in my book, um, and I mentioned this a number of times, there is a maternal sort of supervisor sitting behind um, uh, a male note taker. Um, and and that that's the case as much for the the, the staff officer in, in Cadiz as it is for many of the other examples that I look at. So I, I want to write a book that talks much more about the woman who's on and more directly about the woman who's on mm. the front of that book and about her role in in the Enlightenment. Um, alongside that, alongside that, um, and probably delaying that project yet again, um, we've just won some. Uh, some major funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK uh, to do an amazing um, big project on uh, subscription libraries in the 18th century covering America and the British Isles, um, folding all of the surviving catalogues and all of the surviving borrowing records into a, a big open access database, which is something I've wanted to do for an awfully long time. Uh, we're, I'm amazed to have got the funding and I'm really looking forward to seeing what we'll be able to get out of that. I'm very happy you got the funding too. That's something I'm involved with. So uh, watch this space. So excellent, excellent uh, place to finish, Mark. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much, Max.